Welcome to this Pure Voice activity. To access the entire activity, including downloadable slides and transcript, go to www.purevoice.com forward slash YEJ. This activity is supported by an educational grant from GlaxoSmithKline. Welcome to this Pure Voice activity on herpes zoster. This activity comprises two case-based presentations featuring Drs. Christine Palme and Kelly McDonald, consisting of a clinician-patient dialogue and a discussion. At any time during this presentation, you may download supporting materials and share this activity with colleagues. Our first case focuses on a male, 35 years old, named Grant. Grant works in accounting and has had long-standing Crohn's disease diagnosed several years ago. His medications include infliximab, he's on seasonal allergy medications, a nasal spray, and over-the-counter oral antihistamines. Grant is scheduled for a phone consult to discuss renewal of his allergy medication, given the fact that allergies have been rampant. You take this opportunity to do a chart review, including an immunization update amongst other primary care preventative updates. You recall that this patient should be offered a herpes zoster vaccination as he is immunocompromised, not only due to his diagnosis, but also due to his immunosuppressive medication. Welcome to this Pure Voice activity on herpes zoster. This activity comprises two case-based presentations featuring Drs. Christine Palme and Kelly McDonald, consisting of a clinician-patient dialogue and a discussion. At any time during this presentation, you may download supporting materials and share this activity with colleagues. Hello, I'm Dr. Christine Palme from the Midtown Health and Wellness Clinic in Toronto, Ontario. I am a family doctor and am delighted to welcome you to this activity on herpes zoster, focusing on immunocompromised individuals. Joining me in this discussion is Dr. Kelly McDonald, an infectious disease specialist from the University of Manitoba in Winnipeg. As we all know, herpes zoster, commonly known as shingles, is a secondary infection which occurs after the reactivation of the varicella zoster virus. In addition to that acute phase of illness, this infection can also result in debilitating complications such as herpes zoster ophthalmicus or herpes zoster oticus or even tragically more so long-term conditions such as post-herpatic neuralgia. Although typically considered an older age problem, there are a variety of patient factors that can contribute towards increased risk of herpes zoster infection in younger individuals, as we saw in our patient grant. These factors include chronic diseases like diabetes, COPD, as well as cancers or the use of immunosuppressant medications. So today, we will focus particularly on those patients who are immunocompromised, either due to a diagnosis or medication use. Dr. McDonald, how big of a risk truly is herpes zoster in these immunocompromised individuals? 
Thank you, Dr. Palme. Well, if we look at how immunosuppression impacts the frequency of herpes zoster infection, we can see that there is an approximate nine-fold increase for stem cell transplant patients and a three-and-a-half-fold increase for solid organ transplant recipients compared with general unselected populations. Zoster is a risk for everyone, though. However, the curve is just shifted upwards in these populations. It's basically like premature aging for someone's immune system, shifting the risk to 10 years or sometimes 20 years sooner. It's important to note that not only severe immunosuppression increases risk, even subtle decreases in immunity can increase your risk. For example, exposure to ultraviolet light, like phototherapy for psoriasis, or chronic stress. That's a great point, Dr. McDonald. Can you tell us about some of the other treatments that may increase a patient's risk of herpes zoster that primary care providers such as myself should be aware of? Absolutely. So in terms of medications, pretty much all biologics increase the risk to some degree. Since immunity against zoster reactivation involves cell-mediated immunity as well as antibodies, but I would also urge primary care providers not to forget the risk associated with non-biologic therapies, such as methotrexate, especially when the patient has a big burden of disease with their underlying disorder. These patient populations not only have an increased risk of zoster, but they actually have a more, an increased risk of more severe zoster, multidermatomal zoster, disseminated zoster, and the development of chronic pain and stroke. Just as we now recognize that in the six months post-COVID, people have a much higher risk of stroke and heart attack, we now know that the risk of vascular disease and stroke after zoster is much higher than we previously recognized. And this is particularly true in younger individuals who get zoster, but also true in those who are immunosuppressed those undergoing transplant, chemotherapy, or who are at increased risk of zoster due to other types of immunosuppression. It's important to keep in mind that herpes zoster is a vaccine-preventable disease. So this is potentially an opportunity to avoid burden. In Canada, we have two options approved for herpes zoster vaccination the older live attenuated zoster vaccine and the newer option called the recombinant zoster vaccine, which was approved by Health Canada in 2017. Of note, the original live attenuated zoster vaccine is no longer being produced. The recombinant zoster vaccine is readily available and is now recommended as first line. We are all familiar with NASI's strong recommendation that we have a discussion about herpes zoster vaccination with all of our patients at 50 years of age due to the age-related risk factor of developing herpes zoster. For your patients who come in and claim they do not need a shingles vaccine because they've already had shingles, we have to remind them that you cannot develop immunity to shingles and they are still at risk of developing another episode. Now, focusing on immunocompromised patients, at the time of this recording, NASI's recommendations have not quite caught up with Health Canada. They do not have an official recommendation available for immunocompromised patients over the age of 18. However, looking elsewhere in the world, for example, the United States, 
they are certainly vaccinating individuals over 18 with a vast array of immunocompromised conditions. And even within our borders, Quebec has included individuals with insulin-dependent diabetes, COPD, and asthma. They have a broader approach to what they define as immunocompromised. Of note, even patients who received the varicella vaccine, uh, those patients should still be considered as candidates for herpes zoster vaccination. Despite these recent recommendations, there are still challenges to optimal immunization uptake. We know that the immunocompromised population is very heterogeneous and primary care providers find it challenging to know which patients may need the herpes zoster vaccination. It is also not feasible to define every possible immunocompromised condition or medication combination. There are simply too many permutations. As such, it is important to consider broad recommendations and provide guidance for immunocompromised patients on a case-to-case -case basis. Dr. McDonald, what are your thoughts on how to identify appropriate patients for vaccination? Thank you. Well, most primary care providers are aware of the classic high-risk populations like transplant patients and those with malignancies, particularly hematological malignancies. But they have been trained to be quite cautious or avoid live attenuated zoster vaccine in other immunocompromised patients. So there needs to be emphasis and education about the differences between this new recombinant herpes zoster vaccine which can be safely given to any immunosuppressed population. In addition, with the advent of biologic therapies, there are a great deal of immunosuppressed patients at much higher risk of disease who deserve attention. Patients with diabetes and other patients such as those with asthma on prednisone who present higher risk at an earlier age. So if you're contemplating starting either non-biologic or biologic immunosuppression, you should think about giving uh, vaccination against herpes zoster. Um, but if they've already uh, begun immunosuppression or you're contemplating increasing immunosuppression, it's never too late um, to make sure your patients are adequately vaccinated. There's no contraindication to vaccination with herpes zoster in patients who are on immunosuppression. I think about risk as um, an increasing phenomenon. So the older a patient gets, along with increasing risk from immunosuppression, the more I emphasize this vaccine. As a patient gets older, closer to age 50, even more modest immunosuppression becomes a significant risk factor. I think of this as the layering of multiple risk factors. Thank you, Dr. McDonald. So there are some strategies we can implement in primary care to ensure that we do not miss these immunocompromised patients eligible for the herpes zoster vaccination. We are all busy primary care providers. Time is simply not a currency we have, but it is absolutely essential that we include immunization reviews in almost every single encounter. Some key times would be prescription renewals for biologics, a consult note perhaps coming back from a treating specialist, or a new cancer diagnosis. When you have these patients come in, including patients with diabetes or asthma, pre-chemo patients, patients sent to their family doctor for a TB test before starting infusion, 
have a way integrated into your assessment to flag whether or not they are a risk and whether or not you should have a discussion with them about a herpes zoster vaccination. We hope that you enjoyed this discussion. Some key points to make you think about herpes zoster vaccination for patients under 50 who are immunocompromised. Number one, identification. Have a systemized approach to identify patients at risk, whether that be age-related, chronic disease-related, or medication-related. Number two, ensure that you incorporate a vaccine discussion into every encounter. As primary care providers, one of the pillars of our job is preventative medicine, and one of the foundations of preventative medicine is immunization. Although time is not a currency that we have, we do know that the time that we spend with patients discussing immunizations goes a long way. Hello, I am Dr. Christine Palme from the Midtown Health and Wellness Clinic in Toronto, Ontario. Welcome to this Pure Voice activity on herpes zoster. This activity includes two presentations, each consisting of a clinician-patient dialogue and a discussion. At any time during this case, you may download supporting materials and share this activity with colleagues. Meet our second patient, Maggie. Maggie is a 48-year-old female recently diagnosed with breast cancer. She will soon be starting neoadjuvant chemotherapy prior to her surgery. Her oncologist wisely suggested she ensure her routine immunizations are up to date, particularly those recommended for immunocompromised individuals. Welcome to this Pure Voice activity on herpes zoster. This activity comprises two case-based presentations featuring Drs. Christine Palme and Kelly McDonald consisting of a clinician-patient dialogue and a discussion. At any time during this presentation, you may download supporting materials and share this activity with colleagues. In the second installment of our presentation, we'll be covering key vaccine recommendations for immunocompromised individuals and an overview of the evidence supporting herpes zoster immunization in this population. Dr. McDonald, would you like to start us off with a discussion of some of the evidence on herpes zoster vaccine efficacy in immunocompromised individuals? The data is now uh, quite clear that the recombinant vaccine uh, for herpes zoster is much more efficacious in oncologic patients who are treated, particularly hematologic oncologic patients, than previous vaccines. It also can be given earlier post-transplantation uh, and chemotherapy due to the fact that it's not a live vaccination. Although this vaccine hasn't been around long enough for us to have long-term estimates, the data suggests that post about two years in uh, stem cell transplants, we still see very good responses in these patients because um, these patients are able to uh, mount good um, humoral and cell-mediated responses. 
If you look at uh, immunocompromised adults over 18, for instance, kidney transplants and solid organ transplants, as well as HIV patients, they traditionally have had a, a very significant burden of disease with herpes zoster. So it's been a real game changer to have this new recombinant vaccine with uh, response rates clinically that are over 90%, humoral uh, immunity rates as high as over 90%, and uh, cell-mediated immunity uh, anywhere from 70 to 90% in these populations. And so um, the burden of long-term uh, post-herpetic neuralgia, which was very common in these populations, um, is going to become a thing of the past. So when you think of prostate, breast cancer, colon cancer, those sorts of populations that we treat a lot, um, this is important to think about. And we've now seen uh, the effectiveness in the real world. Uh, and a study recently done showed almost a 65% vaccine effectiveness in uh, immunocompromised uh, patients. So um, that's quite remarkable. With vaccination, it's important to understand that we are introducing uh, a preventative measure into someone who's not sick from that disease at the time. So safety is a, a bar that is very, very high that has to be reached in vaccines. And if you look at the safety profile of this vaccine, um, compared to placebo, uh, you can see that the serious adverse effects were uh, not significantly different than placebo in any of the immunocompromised populations that were tested. Uh, stem cell patients, um, renal transplants, HIV, or other uh, immunosuppressed populations. So it's extremely reassuring to see that there is not an excess rate of adverse effects in the vaccine group in these uh, patient profiles who uh, are very vulnerable patients. What a wonderful summary, Dr. McDonald, and I truly agree. To broadly summarize Health Canada's uh, newly revamped indications for herpes zoster vaccines, the live zoster vaccine is indicated for the prevention of herpes zoster and for the immunization of individuals over 50. The recombinant zoster vaccine is indicated for the prevention of herpes zoster in adults over 50 or adults over 18 who are or who will be at an increased risk of herpes zoster due to immunodeficiency or immunosuppression caused by a known disease or therapy. Of note, we also have discretion to accelerate the second dose. So in cases where a patient perhaps is starting an immunosuppressive medication, and we want to try to ensure that they get both doses of their herpes zoster vaccine prior to starting their particular therapy, we have discretion to provide the second dose four weeks after the first dose, which is one month less than the product monograph stipulates. We've identified our immunosuppressed patients, and we know that the vaccine is safe and effective in this population. So how do we practically make sure that more shots get into arms? When time is simply a currency that we don't have, is the time that we spend devoted to vaccine counseling actually worthwhile? The answer is a resounding yes, regardless of patient type or regardless of vaccine. Patients rely on our opinion as a primary care provider to provide counseling and most importantly, 
personalized recommendations made calmly and with confidence. The most significant factor while a needle goes into an arm is because the patient has received a recommendation from a trusted healthcare provider. As a result of the pandemic, what has become clear is that the siloed form of medicine is no longer sustainable. To increase vaccine uptake, we need to engage with all healthcare professionals from across the board, specialists, family doctors, nurse practitioners, pharmacists. We need to leverage different geographical spaces and different clinics to spread the vaccine message repeatedly and also open up access. Plan ahead and complete chart reviews at each encounter to determine co-administration options and maximize in-office appointment efficiency. Advise your patients to document their shots and let you know at your next appointment if they have received their vaccine elsewhere. There's no doubt that preventative care fell by the wayside during the COVID pandemic. However, NASI and many other international organizations put forth strong statements that vaccination was an essential service, continues to be an essential service, and must be part of our daily encounters. In terms of providing vaccination for herpes zoster, the official podogramonograph suggests that you provide the second dose within two to six months following the first dose. However, due to lockdowns and restrictions, NASI has extended the upper interval from six to 12 months, giving us a bit more wiggle room. Well said, Dr. Palme. And to uh, underscore your point, I'd like to uh, make another comment. Given the priority of COVID-19 and influenza vaccination in these same populations, practitioners should consider giving the recombinant herpes zoster vaccine at the same visit in the other arm. Other recombinant and live vaccines are not contraindicated at the same visit either at different anatomic sites. We also know now that COVID-19 may well alter immune status of patients who are afflicted. So it's all the more important to address issues such as herpes zoster vaccination in vulnerable populations. As primary care providers, our role is to provide evidence-based recommendations. Also, recommendations based on patients' personal risk factors. When discussing an unfunded vaccine, provide the evidence and let the patient decide whether they will be willing to pay or not. Dr. McDonald, do you have any other recommendations? I get asked quite a lot by patients uh, with respect to this vaccine, uh, the question, it's a bit expensive. Is it really worth it? And something that I often will tell them is, everyone has to make their own decisions about where they spend their insurance and other healthcare dollars. But relative to some of the other therapies that we have a tendency to spend our money on, I think the evidence is uh, very strong that preventing real loss of productivity and long-term chronic illness uh, from this vaccine is one of the most important things we can spend our money on. We hope that you enjoyed the second installment discussing herpes zoster vaccination in immunocompromised patients. I'd like to share some clinical pearls. Number one, incorporate vaccine discussion into every appointment. Set expectations. When a patient comes to my office, they know that at some point I'll be discussing or reviewing their vaccine status. Number two, provide evidence-based, personalized recommendations, and also proactively address 
some vaccine hesitancy concerns that a patient may have. And finally, as we've mentioned previously, do not forget that our role as primary care providers really does make a difference whether a patient chooses to receive a vaccine or not. Thank you, Dr. McDonald, for sharing your expertise with us today. And we truly hope that this educational series was worthwhile and will provide some practical tips and tricks when you return to the office. This has been an activity published by Peer Voice.